Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. 1794. On the day he's taken from his family, a bus is carving a peacock into a cabinet door. He drives his gouge tip through the rosewood, adjusting the pressure with his pointer finger. Groovers dip deepen, a beak appears. He moves on to sculpt feathers stacked like scales. He excels at this task and has never been so bored in his life. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Tanya James about her gorgeous historical novel set in 18th century India, England, and France. Loot tells the story of a young woodcarver who's called to the Sultan's palace to carve a tiger that looks like it's attacking a British soldier. The young woodcarver, Abbas Muhammad, is apprenticed to the Sultan's clockmaker, and together they create an automaton that roars like a tiger before it sinks its teeth into the soldier's neck. The Sultan, Tipu Sultan, is also known as the Tiger of Mysore, and he rules his kingdom until the British attack. This is a story about colonialism, hatred by those who are subjected to the rule of outsiders, the question about who owns art, and why do some countries still have the art that they stole. It's also a coming-of-age story and an epic tale of bravery and ambition. Hi, Tanya. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. It's so nice to be here. I read that you were inspired by a picture of Tipu's tiger in a book. How did that picture turn into this amazing novel? Yeah, I was actually looking at um, the history of automatons, which are these sort of proto-robots. So they were they were popular in the 1600s and 1700s, where people were trying to kind of build real-life models of humans and animals that could actually function like humans and animals. This was the first one that I had read of that was made in India. And 
there was something so intriguing about it because it's basically it is an enormous tiger, a wooden tiger that's mauling the throat of an English English soldier. And um, it was just so um, darkly irreverent and kind of anti-colonialist. And I read that it was commissioned by an Indian ruler who who just really hated the British East India Company. And I'd never encountered anything like it. And it was just one of those images that holds so much mystery and has a certain amount of um, allure. And I so I just couldn't, I just became sort of obsessed with it. And then I just thought, well, let me take the advice I give to my students sometimes, which is when you're obsessed with something, try giving your obsession to a character and see how that propels the story. Mm. Now that you've written the book, do you think possibly a museum in India will demand the return of Tipu's tiger? That's a really interesting question because um, the Indian government or the culture secretary just announced that they were going to ask for 10 items from the British government. And two of those items belong to Tipu Sultan, who is the ruler of Mysore um, that's featured in my book. Um, they don't include, it doesn't include um, the actual automaton, but as a friend of mine kind of jokingly put it to me, he was like, the British government isn't really known for it's for embracing change. So I don't see this happening mm. anytime soon, but but the gesture itself is is kind of special and um, remarkable. And, and in keeping with this sort of movement toward restitution of plundered objects that's happening all over the world. Yeah. What does the tiger symbolize in India or particularly for that sultan? Um, I think I'm not sure about for the entirety of India, but I, I know that um, for Tipu Sultan, it was almost like an early form of branding because he had these tiger stripes that were on everything. It, they were on his um, on all his soldiers sleeves. They were it was on his coins. It was it was just an image that was in his architecture, the stripes. And he really wanted to um, associate himself with boldness and and courage and, you know, ferocity and and um, I think he had he had a saying that was like better to live one day as a tiger than a hundred days as a sheep or something like that. Mm. But basically, like I, I I will I'm I am powerful and also willing to do a- anything and everything to hold on to this to power. Basically, mm-hmm. why was he forced to give his two young sons to Lord Cornwallis and? And then why were they subsequently returned to him? Well, uh, Mysore and the British East India Company fought a total of four wars. And um, and this is after the third war, when Mysore was defeated, Lord Cornwallis, who was the general of the um, East British armies, um, he, uh, he levied all kinds of incredibly uh, high penalties on on. Tipu Sultan and, and on Mysore. And in order to sort of secure the the fact that they were going to repay and, and pay all their debts, um, they insisted on taking his two youngest sons as hostage, which were which was sort of uncommon for the time. That was a sort of rare and um I imagine humiliating thing for Tipu to sort of endure. The interesting thing when I was doing my research is I found all these paintings and engravings of that of him handing over his sons and they were by British artists and they depict that moment of handoff as this very romantic 
lovely situation where the kids just look so happy to be running into Cornwallis's arms as if, you know, Britain is, it almost seems to symbolize Britain trying to kind of civilize um, the Indian subcontinent in some way. And I just, I thought that I, I, you know, there's so much when you're writing historical fiction, there's so many historical events that you're like, should I include this? Should I include that? But those paintings really want, made me want to kind of include that um, handoff in some way, even though it doesn't take place within the novel, it's sort of essential to the beginning of the novel. Mm -hmm. The novel uh, really circles around Abbas. He's a 17 year old when one of the uh, Sultan's soldiers comes and demands his presence at the palace, at the is it called the palace? Yes. Um, and he is brought in because of his skills as a woodworker to work with a man, a Frenchman named Lucien Deleuze. Can you talk about how Lucien Deleuze came to work for Tipu? It couldn't have been that easy to get to India from France. Why did he come? Well, he initially he comes because um, Tipu, the real Tipu Sultan, he was really a visionary in that he understood that in order to compete with Europeans, he needed um, European expertise. So he had a lot of French uh, people at court, a lot of English people too at court who were experts in engineering and military strategics and um, military strategy and also in various industries. And so I knew that there was a clockmaker at his court because his name appears in the margins of some book. And the name I saw was Les, L-E-Z-E. And I thought, well, I knew that the actual automaton that the inside, the internal mechanics of it are thought to be French and the exterior is, you know, Mysorean in style. And so I built this character basically around that one word in the margin about this one clockmaker. And basically Dulez in the novel, he comes as a sort of guest and expert um, at court for Tipu Sultan, but then he winds up staying there because um, the French Revolution takes place while he's in India. And um, it basically upends his status in, in France. There's a law that goes into effect that bans um, expats from going back home. And um, and so Dulez is sort of exiled and sort of stranded, you know, sort of stranded in, in Mysore. And that's how he um, ultimately winds up there. And how did you come to write Abbas? Abbas, I mean, I... I began with the image of the automaton and I began with the idea that this would be a heist novel that takes place in an English country house. I initially thought this would be about two characters who are trying to swindle an older wealthy lady out of the automaton that's sort of uh, moldering away in her house, in her English country house. And then I thought, I, I really needed to come up with a character who would want this object so badly that he'd be willing to risk his reputation um, to get it. And, and I kept then kind of cycling back and back into this character's past. And I thought about, I landed on the artist himself and what, what that, what making that object would have meant to him when he is from such kind of probably lower class um, circumstances, you know, and so that character really, it was really, I began with the situation and then I was trying to kind of retrofit the character who would be willing to to take this sort of risk. And that's how Abbas sort of emerged on the page. 
Wow, that is so interesting. And so much of the book is about specific relationships that Abbas has with different people. At the beginning of his relationship with uh, Deleuze, Deleuze tells him, even when he does, he, he just nods and agrees with whatever Deleuze tells him, even when he doesn't understand. So why does Deleuze have to teach him how to ask? Is that a cultural difference? I I think of it as, I don't know about a cultural difference, though I imagine that's something to do with it. I mean, he is not, uh, he, he's only ever worked in his father's workshop as a woodcarver. His father has, tells him at the outset of the novel, don't ask questions. That's one of the recurring kind of motifs or questions throughout the novel. You know, what is what is the price of curiosity? How can it how can it sort of open doors, but how can it also get you get him in hot water because he's not in a contemporary situation. He's in, he lives in very brutal circumstances where people are constantly watching you and um, sort of surveilling you. And so curiosity can actually be a dangerous muscle to exercise. And so he's not used to exercising it at all at the outset of the novel. Um, so I imagine that is that you're right when I think about it, Galit, that it is cultural. Um, mm. And then I think I also too kind of, I probably transposed some of my own experiences as a younger artist that you're almost afraid to admit to how little you know, um, mm -hmm. as if admitting to that will will mean you have to cede your seat at the table. And and that, I, I just remember acutely that kind of, um, the, that sort of, phase that feeling um early on where you don't you don't want to admit to how how uh, little you know and you don't want to admit to that level of vulnerability when we meet monsieur martin and his daughter jahan how is that pronounced um in the beginning of the book she's jahan because she is raised by the women in her family muslim women and then when she moves to france they change it to jeanne because she sort of erases her um Indian identity. Ah, how um, is it that both she, uh, her father and Jean, how is it they both end up living in Mysore with Monsieur Deleuze? Well, Jean's father, his her birth father, um, married a Muslim woman, uh, an upper class kind of Muslim woman who dies in childbirth, and then he decides to. And he actually also is another expat who Tipu has brought over. He's an engineer, and he then, um, at some point, gets permission or, or passage on a ship to go back to um, to go back to Rouen, where he's from. Um, and so he brings Jeanne, but he dies at sea. And so that's how Dulez adopts her when she's still a young, a young girl of 14. And he raises her in Rouen. It's a very kind of lonely life for a long time until um, her path crosses with Abbas's. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Will you say something about the wonder hand? Was there such a person or did you invent him? 
No, I, there was such a person, his title was the wonder hand, but he was, um, I can't remember which Mughal emperor he, whose court he was in, but, um, when I encountered that name, I just thought I have to use it. And so, you know, it, I, I feel like sometimes I invent things, but they feel within the realm of possibility. So, um, the wonder hand in my novel is someone who, I believe he is someone who is just extremely refined and um, incredibly gifted at setting jewels and carving jewelry. And he can carve the tiniest inscriptions in the inside of a ring. That that was a real person who existed, but I I basically just took his name and his skills and and put them on a different character. Um, so Tipu Sultan is who you're writing about, whose palace this was and who had the idea for this automaton. And he also had the idea of creating rockets that would cane across the sky. So how did it happen that a British person took credit for it and that that rocket is now called the Congreve? Because I looked it up in Wikipedia Wikipedia acknowledges that the rockets were used in Mysore during wars with the British invaders. Can you yeah. speak about that? Isn't that fascinating? I mm-hmm. I, I thought that was amazing. Um, he basically um, figured out a way of increasing the pressure inside of the rocket so that it had even more um, velocity and could travel farther. And he, he tipped them with swords. And um, I mean, he was, he really had a lot he was really very interested in technology and in you know advancing technology and he you know for example like there's he started the um sericulture industry in Mysore which is the development of silk silk and silkworms and um that that industry is thriving in Mysore to this day everyone in India knows about Mysorean silk it's something really special um but you know he had all these ideas about trade he had trade outposts as far north in in Kutch. Um, I just, I wanted to give the sense that he wasn't, he he could be very um, brutal to his adversaries and, and, you know, ruthlessly violent and probably alienated his allies, people who could have been his allies if, you know, if he hadn't been so brutal. But at the same time, he was extremely um, forward thinking. And I, you know, these, I, I guess, you know, like many people who we think of as icons, they're full of contradiction and they're, you know, um, I, I wanted to just give him some of the complexity that, you know, propagandistic, you know, accounts of the time really didn't afford him. Mm-hmm. The novel begins in India, but later moves to both England and then France. Did you travel to all the towns you mentioned or did you research everything in the library? Well, this is a really interesting book to write during a pandemic, which (laughs) (laughs) I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, any book is challenged by being written during a pandemic in different ways. But um, I did, I I couldn't travel to India for many years. And I never thought I, I don't, I'm not the kind of writer who can write a book set in a place without going there myself, even though, you know, writing a book set in 17th century or 18th century India that that place is just not there. Even if you go to India, it's there, but it's so far from removed from what it looked like. But still, I managed to go at some point toward the end of the pandemic, or, or you no, know, I still think of us being in the pandemic, but um, 
I found a window of time where I could go. And um, it was remarkable. I, I just felt like the thing that stood out to me most was a marker. And it had all the names of the British soldiers that had been killed at the siege of Seringapatam, which was the final battle. And it had all the names of the Madras sepoys who had been killed. Um, and not a single name of the Mysorean forces who who were killed in droves. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable numbers, probably. Um, and it's just that idea of erasure. So it was more like I wasn't gaining necessarily a whole lot of facts in that research, but it was more like a certain haunted feeling that kind of gave me, that made me want to keep going and and go back to this place and do justice to it. And then I did end up going to Rouen. I went to London. Um, I based the country house on Strawberry Hill House, which is in Twickenham, Twickenham, which is 30, 30 minutes outside London. So yeah, I, I, that was actually very helpful. That house is very well preserved. And I, I gained, again, it's more a kind of atmosphere that I'm, I'm trying to absorb. And um, it helped me to be surrounded by um, the, the kind of things that are, that, populate a house like that all these little pieces and you know quirky things on the wall and like images of saracens from the crusades um it helped me gain a portrait of lady selwyn is it known how the sculpture how the automaton really did get out of india and make its way to um to england yeah, I, I, there was a good, one of the earliest books I read was by Susan Strong, who's a curator at the V&A Museum, and she documents how um, these soldiers at that siege discovered and came upon this uh, automaton in the music room, and they were sort of stunned by it. And it's interesting because everything else that was plundered and looted was, you know, they, ha they had like uh, inherent value. They were gold or, you know, um, a bird that's studied with rubies or they, they just had, they were made of precious things. And this was just this thing made of wood and glue and gears. And yet it was immediately captivating to the first people who witnessed it. And so it was packaged and taken back to England and stored and displayed in the India house, which was kind of a precursor to a museum. It was mainly yeah. filled with uh, clerks. Um, and people could come in and see it uh, in the library. Sometimes people would play it. So it was, it was popular from the minute it hit the shores. Of wow. So, so just one more thing. What are you working on next, Tanya? That's a great question. I, you know, I'm toying with a number of different ideas. One thing I've been attracted to are workplace novels. So I, I, I'm still, I, I'm still kind of in the very early stages, but I'm, I'm trying to imagine my way into a workplace novel that involves a cast of characters. Wow! I hope it involves some yummy travel and <laughs> and you. castles and other countries. I hope it's wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Galit. And again, thank you for joining me. This is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been chatting with Tanya James, author of Loot. Hope you all have a good book to cuddle up with today and always. Happy reading. <laughs>